This is Young Lawyer Rising from the ABA Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. Listeners, welcome back. I'm your host, Montana Funk. Today, we are joined by Stephanie Baez. Stephanie began her legal career as a litigation associate in the New York office of Freed Frank, LLP. While at Freed Frank, Stephanie was selected to spend one year as the Freed Frank Fellow to Her Justice Incorporated, a nonprofit in New York that provides family law and immigration assistance to low-income women. Stephanie as well was a supervising attorney at the San Diego Volunteer Lawyer Program, managing the Family Law Pro Bono Program and developing initiatives to recruit, mentor, and engage pro bono volunteers. Stephanie's extensive pro bono experience, both as a volunteer attorney and as a program manager, led her to her position today, Director of Pro Bono for the ABA Commission on Immigration. I'm so excited to have Stephanie with us. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited. We're talking about immigration law today. And as a Canadian living in the U.S., this is kind of a a fun topic for me. So thank you. It's my pleasure, Montana. Thank you for having me today. And I'm glad that the topic is near and dear to your heart. I'm I'm excited (laughs) for our conversation. It definitely is. I mean, I've experienced obviously all the working side of things working here, but I haven't actually experienced the practice side of things, which I think is really a cool topic that a lot of people honestly don't know about. And I think something important to just start off this episode before we kind of dive into the nitty gritty is if you could tell our listeners what immigration law actually is, because I think there's probably a lot to it that listeners might not know about. So I know that's a loaded question, but just to tell our listeners, what is immigration law? Yeah, it is. It's a huge question. Um, And like you said, an important one. Immigration law covers a wide array of topics. Really, part of immigration law includes business immigration, employment-based immigration, student visas, and family-based immigration, and other petitions for people to arrive in the United States. And a whole other bucket of immigration is under the umbrella of removal defense. And removal defense is the, the name given for immigration for people who have come to the United States and are in deportation proceedings, basically, and, and are trying to apply for different forms of relief to allow them to stay in the United States. So some immigration law can involve going to court, and it is very heavy emotionally and can be very intense in that way. Other immigration law can involve more paperwork and doesn't involve court at all. In either event, it's it's really helping people um, in, a, in a pretty major way and a, a life-changing way for them, no matter which path of, of immigration law we're discussing. So that's interesting. It kind of sounds like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you can kind of do immigration from a transactional side as well as maybe a more litig like being a litigant, right? Or a litigation side of things, which I mean, quite honestly, I did not know. So is that true? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. There is um, on, on the, the business and the visa side, education, that side of immigration really is more transactional. It's more what you would think of um, as, a, as a transactional attorney job. And it's more the removal defense side that involves going to court. Although I will say, even in the, the removal defense side, there are two paths under that umbrella. One path involves cases that are in immigration court. And those cases are for people who have been apprehended either when they cross the border or when they've been here, they've been apprehended in some way and placed into removal proceedings, meaning that 
someone's filed what's called a notice to appear. Um, the government has filed that against them saying that they need to appear in court and they need to prove why they have grounds to stay in the United States. So those cases end up in immigration court before a judge with opposing counsel, kind of more the litigation field that you might think of. But there's also a section um, of what, what is more referred to as affirmative immigration. And those are for people who maybe they come over on a student visa and then the student visa expires and they want to stay in the United States. And so at that time, they're going to apply for a different type of relief. Uh, maybe at that time, they're going to apply for asylum because it's dangerous for them to go back to their home country. Those people apply before USCIS, which is a government agency, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. And it's actually not litigation in the way you'd think of. They do paperwork. And if they um, once they are having their case adjudicated, it's called an asylum interview with an asylum officer. There's no opposing counsel. It's a less adversarial setting. And lawyers actually have, they have a big role in preparing applications, but a more minimum ro minimal role in the actual interview itself. So there's lots of different paths for immigration, but the, the actual litigation part is really just one subset of the whole category. So do you see, um, obviously, in practice, any type or I guess any area of immigration that is most prevalent in the country? Would it be those removal proceedings or what are you like, what do you find is the, the highest need of immigration in, in the U.S.? Well, so I work for the ABA Commission on Immigration and we work specifically in removal defense. And I think that when a lot of people think about immigration, that's the bucket that they think of. In my line of work, which really is focusing on, uh, I work with other nonprofits and, and legal service providers that um, provide free legal services services. And most of those organizations are doing removal defense for people who are seeking asylum or other forms of relief to stay in the United States. That said, in terms of what's the most prevalent, business immigration and visas and, and student visas, that's absolutely extremely pre prevalent. There are many private firms that are devoted to that. It's, it's a really important part of immigration. It's not my field or area expertise, so I'm really more in that removal defense world. But certainly the biz business immigration side of things is also quite prevalent. So that kind of leads me into my next point then in a similar comparison being, you know, litigation versus civil um, and transactional. It also sounds like there's kind of opportunities both in public sector as well as private. Am I correct to understand that as well? That's right. Yep. In terms of um, employment opportunities, there's a vast number of options, both in public and private sector. That's right. Okay. So if you don't mind telling our listeners kind of how you got into, you know, immigration law, I'm assuming a lot of the listeners similar to me don't realize just how many branches there are and kind of provide our listeners guidance for those who are saying, hey, maybe this is something I want to do. You know, how, how you became part of it and how to guide them into being part of it, if that's something that they want to explore. Yes, absolutely. My path was actually kind of an unusual one and a bit circuitous to end up where I am in immigration law. When I was in law school, I, I knew that I wanted to do something that involved social justice work, but I didn't quite know what. And actually in law school, I was more focused on international uh, human rights. And those were the, the clinics that I did. The internships were all more focused on international issues. And when I graduated from law school, my first job was at a corporate firm in New York. So again, a completely different path then than even what I was primarily interested in law school. I ended up at a, in a big corporate firm, but it had a fairly robust pro bono practice. And so when I was a summer associate, 
there was actually an opportunity to go and spend two weeks at the southern border in Texas with an organization called ProBar, which is actually part of the Commission on Immigration. So my career has kind of come full circle. But my first pro bono experience, my first immigration experience was as a volunteer working with ProBar, representing an individual who was detained at the border who was seeking asylum. And it was myself and another summer associate, and we had a supervising attorney, and we spent two weeks working in and out of the detention center, putting the case together. It was a a young man from Ethiopia who had experienced a lot of um, violence based on his political opinions. And at the end of the two weeks, we had our trial before the judge, and we were putting on the whole case. And we we won. We were successful, and, and that young man won asylum. And it was an amazing experience and really something that was pretty formative for me in terms of shaping then what I wanted to be doing with my career. That said, it still took a while for me to get where I am. So I spent a few years at the corporate law firm. Um, I did continue to do pro bono while I was there. And my pro bono involvement was in immigration law and in family law and domestic violence cases. Um, so I had a, I had an experience to, to help a few more asylum cases while I was there. And I had an experience where I was able to work at a nonprofit actually as a, it's almost like a succumbent, um, a, a fellowship that my law firm sponsored in conjunction with a, a nonprofit nonprofit that did family law and immigration law in New York City. So I was able to do that for a year and then went back to corporate law. And then I ended up clerking in the Southern District of New York. And by that time, I was ready to to leave New York. I'm from the West Coast originally. And so I ended up moving to San Diego. And in San Diego, I actually did a, again, because I kind of had tried a little of everything. I did a year at a firm doing employment law, which again was kind of a deviation, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And from there, I finally ended up in the nonprofit world. I worked at an organization in San Diego that did a lot of different pro bono services, and I was in the family law and domestic violence department of that organization. And I did a lot of direct services and eventually became a supervisor and did a lot of pro bono work within that. And when I left there, I came to the Commission on Immigration really more as my my title is director of pro bono. And I came in more because of my knowledge in pro bono than because of my knowledge in immigration. And while I've been on this job, I've really been able to to learn a lot as I'm trying to figure out what we want to teach other people. Um, And now I've, I've been lucky enough to do this for a few years and really get deep into the immigration world. So my path has certainly been kind of a windy road. I did put my finger in a lot of different buckets. I wanted to try a lot of different things. And this seems to be what is what's sticking. And so I'm, I feel very fortunate to have ended up in an immigration job. But there's lots of different paths to get there. It sounds like it. And I want to take a quick break. But when we come back, I kind of want to talk about opportunities for those who may still want to practice in different areas, but also incorporate immigration. So we'll take a quick break. And then when we get back, we'll talk about that. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. 
Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. So before the break, we were kind of discussing how you do pro bono, and there also is immigration that's weaved in that, right? And obviously our listeners know that pro bono doesn't just mean immigration, and immigration doesn't just mean pro bono. But what could you tell our listeners who are in an area of practice, let's say they're doing transactional work for wills or something, right, that they... They don't want to leave, but they still kind of want to incorporate maybe some tidbits of immigration here or there. It interests them. How can they get involved without completely leaving their practice? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the first main points is what you touched on at the outset of our our discussion, that there is a good part of immigration law that is transactional. Oftentimes, transactional attorneys think there's no way I could do that. I don't want to be in court. I don't want to litigate. I, you know, that's not my thing. Uh, But there's still a lot of ways that you can help, even if you don't want to go into court. So that's just one thing to to keep in mind. I would say that getting in touch with local nonprofits or national nonprofits to explore their pro bono opportunities is a great place to start. We're really seeing a trend in the pro bono world generally, but especially in immigration post-pandemic. There's a trend that having light touch, kind of bite-sized pro bono opportunities is becoming much more prevalent. Opportunities where people can be involved virtually um, and where it doesn't require, sometimes when we think of pro bono, we just think I'm going to accept a case and I'm going to represent this client in court. There's a lot of different creative models right now that that nonprofits are, are working with where pro bono attorneys or volunteers can be involved just to participate in a legal clinic for a day where they might show up, they'll get training, they'll show up and they'll help someone with uh, a certain part of their written application and just work with that person for one day. And it's a significant help to them in their immigration application, but there's no, there's no homework, there's no court representation. So those kinds of models, legal clinics or pro se assistance where people might help, maybe it's over the course of a month, meeting with an applicant a couple different times to help them build their application as a pro se asylum applicant. Those sorts of models are becoming a lot more popular. So for someone who might be a little bit nervous about getting involved, that's a great way to start. I I will also say that jumping in for full case representation is also something that I, I strongly encourage. And I think that it's an amazing way for especially newer attorneys to learn new skills. It's an opportunity. Most nonprofits provide a lot of training and a lot of support to their volunteers. And so it's an opportunity to learn a new skill where it's okay to admit you know nothing. Most nonprofits expect that the the volunteers learn nothing, know nothing coming into it, that they are... And of course, I don't mean that they know nothing. I mean that immigration <laughs> is new to them. I should I should clarify there. Uh, they're very smart, knowledgeable people. But immigration is is new, and that's expected. And so, training and a lot of support and mentorship throughout the process is usually a very standard part of the pro bono experience for immigration nonprofits. Oftentimes, attorneys think. I can't do this. I this, The stakes are so high. It is such a big uh, responsibility and it seems very daunting and overwhelming. But really, when you when you're thinking about it for 
an immigrant who is an asylum seeker, for example, they're generally not choosing between A plus superstar, big wig immigration attorney and you, the volunteer. They're choosing between a volunteer. They're not choosing. They're hoping to get a volunteer or nobody or they're representing themselves. And so just by having gone to law school, speaking English as your primary language, understanding how the legal system works to some degree, those skills, that knowledge just coming in with that is such a huge help to asylum seekers who, who need that assistance. And so it really is, we always try to encourage people to get involved and not not second guess themselves or think that it's something that, that you know, they're not qualified enough to handle because really any little bit goes such a long way. And I think also something important that you said was, you know, the whole volunteering aspect. And I don't know enough about this topic, which is why obviously we have you on here to discuss. But something I'm curious about is, are there ways that people can get involved that may not even be legal representation that can still help people who are seeking asylum or need help in the immigration area? If someone's a lawyer and they're like, hey, I don't have time, unfortunately, to you know, do this, but I still want to help somehow. Is there any way that they can help? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that one of those ways, I think legal clinics are a great way to do it. Most legal clinics, there's no, there's no representation. It's maybe helping someone for two hours where you're get involved, you get trained on how to do something and you help someone fill out an application. One example of that is we've been running this summer, the ABA Commission on Immigration has been running a re-parole clinic for Afghans. And re-parole, well, parole basically is a, a form of humanitarian relief for Afghans who have come to the United States, a certain group of them since uh, the Taliban took over in Afghanistan about two years ago. There are a group of people that were what's called paroled into the United States, meaning that they have temporary status to live and work in the U.S. It was a two-year temporary status that has now expired or is in the process of, re of, of expiring for, for many people. So the reparole process is an application to help them extend that status for two more years. It's a really basic application. It involves filling out someone's name, their address, contact information, checking a few boxes and uploading a few identity documents to an online system. And it's a great way for people to get involved because it's a huge help. It's it's not something that takes a lot of, you know, legal background or knowledge, but it's really helpful to people who don't speak the language, who are overwhelmed by the legal system, who have a lot of questions about what it might mean, who might have some difficulty accessing the technology. So having volunteers come in, and, and our volunteers can be attorney or non-attorney volunteers to come in and help with this process. And all of their work is reviewed by immigration experts before anything gets submitted. But things like that, that's a great thing to keep an eye out for, for people who are interested and want to get involved without doing too much legal work. Sometimes just helping fill out forms in that way can be can really go a long way. It definitely seems like there's really so much that can be done that probably isn't realized. And it's so important, right? And the little basic things, like you said, that maybe only take an hour or two, or as much as helping fill out a name, or even helping someone who can do all that, but has that language barrier, it's very eye opening, just to see how much room there is for help and how we all could just do a little bit of a part to help. So I want to take a quick break. And then when we get back, I do want to pick your brain on a couple of more things um, about this topic. So I do think that it's so important. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. 
the ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at InfoTrack.com simple. So I want to wrap up with a couple of more questions and these ones might be a little bit more loaded. So bear with me. But I think something important for all of our listeners is kind of hearing it from you because you practice in this area, why immigration law is so important. And I think a lot of people probably think, okay, well, I know that this is obviously important. I know there's a lot of people, whether seeking asylum, like you said, or trying to bring their business over. But why is immigration first of all, so prevalent in this country? And why do you think it's such an area that actually is really, truly so important? Yeah, and it is. That's a that's a very big question. Migration to the United States is something that's been happening for a long time. And, and you know, in the news, people might be hearing of the, the numbers and how many people are trying to come into the United States. And really, there's a lot of factors be- behind that. But one major factor is people fleeing unsafe situations. And um, as there's violent situations that have been um, exasperated around the globe, more people are trying to come to the United States for a chance for for safety from um, from the persecution that they've experienced in their home country. That is one of the reasons why immigration in this area of law is so important, is that when people come to the United States, ensuring that they have access to due process and that they get a fair shake at our legal system that's one of the fundamental tenets of our of our country and of our um, legal system is letting people have their cases be heard and then making a fair decision about whether they are able to stay in the United States or not when people don't have access to counsel in immigration, they're really not getting a fair opportunity to to avail themselves of due process in this country because they the system is designed to really have people move through their cases in a way that if they don't speak the language or if they don't have attorneys, it can be extremely difficult for them. Uh, there's no no right to a government funded attorney for people in removal proceedings. So uh, for example, a public defender or an attorney akin to that, there's no right for that in removal proceedings. So oftentimes people will come across, it doesn't matter their age, it doesn't matter their ability, they have to represent themselves. Um, You know, children can be in immigration court representing themselves and trying to explain to the judge why they are allowed to be in the United States. And it's not as simple as just explaining what harm they face or what harm they fear back in their home country. They have to apply that to the law, which needs means that they need to show that they were persecuted on a on account of a, a certain protected ground. And that's 
the asylum law that would allow them to stay in the U.S. Most Americans don't know that. Most lawyers don't know that. People who are coming across, they don't know that. And they might have experienced atrocious things, but they don't know how to link it to the legal standard that would allow them to stay here. And that's one of the reasons why it's really crucial to have an attorney who can help explain and really just advocate. Um, it's, it's advocacy in the truest sense of the word to have an attorney there to help explain what happened and how it it applies and why these individuals are uh, legally allowed to stay in the United States and seek freedom and safety and a new life here. It clearly is so important that people have representation. And it's so important that we get to, I mean, every day take for granted, right? Probably just how great of a place we live in. And I, like I said, I used to live in Canada, right? So I've seen, I've been in two countries that are just so amazing with the freedom that I have. And it just really shows how much this work really is amazing and needs to be done when you have people who don't have that same freedom that we've experienced. And it makes me sad to hear that people don't have that right to representation, like a public defender. And I, I guess I'm curious, um, you know, how you find or how people, if they don't have this right, how are people finding clients or how are they, you know, becoming aware that, hey, this person or this child is here and needs an attorney? How do you navigate that? Yeah, this is part of why pro bono assistance and is so important. Basically, in the in most courthouses, I think in all immigration courthouses, people in removal proceedings are given a list that has the names of local nonprofits in their area where they can call and try to find free a free attorney. And so they can call these lists, but the need is so great. The demand far 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 outweighs the availability of of attorneys. And so People who are immigration practitioners who work for the nonprofits, they are working really hard. Usually caseloads are, you know, can be big. Um, you know, they're, they're really in the trenches and, and doing the best they can, but there's just not enough people. And so having people who want to help with pro bono cases come in and just take one case, that really helps to alleviate the burden and can help to um, ensure that people do have access to counsel. Because right now the demand is much greater than, than the number of attorneys that are available to assist. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and enlightening me and all of our listeners on this, because I think it's a way to get the message out, right? There clearly is the need for this help. And it is such, I don't want to keep using the word important, but I'm going to, it's such an important topic. And I'm hoping that our listeners can gain some insight and maybe help out and where there is such a high demand for that. So I do want to thank you for the work you're doing because it just is amazing. And I'm sure it's so rewarding. The last thing I want to ask, which I ask all of my guests. So it's one of the easier questions is tell our listeners where they can find you. Absolutely. So uh, they can find me at the American Bar Association Commission on Immigration. Our website, if you just Google the Commission on Immigration, will pop up or uh, by email, stephanie.baez at americanbar.org. And I'm happy to answer anyone's questions about immigration, how they can get involved and how they could do some pro bono work if interested. Well, thank you again so much, Stephanie. I might be reaching out to help get involved because seriously, this topic is so interesting to me. And I, with, there's such a big need in it, like I said, it sounds like it'd be really rewarding. So I appreciate you joining us today and I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. Thank you so much, Montana. It's a pleasure to be here. Listeners, that is our show. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, you know what to do. Recommend us to a friend and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Montana Funk, and you've been listening to Young Lawyer Rising, brought to you by the ABA Young Lawyers Division and the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.